All right. So welcome back to In the Back of Our Minds, a podcast dedicated to enriching the growth of our minds by bringing the themes we think but don't talk about but should talk about to the limelight. Except today, I'm going to be talking about something that's all over the limelight um, and is running across all of our minds probably. So this past week, today is June 29th, 2022, so it's Wednesday, we saw the overturning of Roe versus Wade on Friday. And I was thinking for a while now um, of podcast episodes, you know, as I do. And I had a lot of other ideas and plans. And I was like, oh, I'm just going to keep thinking on these. And every time I went to plan a different episode idea or whatever, I just, <laughs> I just couldn't do it. Because we're literally facing one of the biggest healthcare issues. And I think it's just wrong to not talk about it. Um, but then this other side of me was like, oh my gosh, how can I talk about it when I feel like I don't know enough? But the truth is, is I feel like I'll never know enough. I am by no means an expert in anything like this. Um, and I don't know if I ever will be. And I want my, you know, I want to try my darndest to be, obviously, because it's so important that I not only stay educated on these things, but other people do as well. Um, and that it comes up in my conversations with my family and friends. It is really important. So I really just want to go past that stigma of not talking about it all because that's not going to help anyone. <laughs> so even though, you know, I'm going to be talking as if I know everything or whatever, the truth is, is that I literally just did research on this. The truth is, is that I don't have much expertise. Obviously, I'm 18 years old. How much expertise can an 18 year old have? <laughs> like none. But okay, not to invalidate. Um, it's just so important. And I feel like it would be wrong to not talk about this on a podcast that I said would promote well-being because physical health and public health is just such an important part of that mental well-being. You can't have mental well-being and mindfulness without, you know, your physical health being prioritized. And right now it's not being prioritized for so many people. So <laughs> that's that's what we're talking about today. Okay. So today's podcast is going to be mainly focused on the history of abortion in the U.S. So I'm going to talk about that because that's something that I honestly didn't know much about before. And I figured uh, I'm just going to try to compile everything I learned from research this these past few days um, into this one podcast episode in case, you know, this could be maybe a good use for anyone who's like me and didn't really know much about abortion um, and the history of it beforehand. And then I want to talk about recent events. And then I'm going to talk about what those can imply for the future and along with the public health issues side of it all, because I think that's where I'm mainly drawn to and I think know a little bit more about, but honestly, what do I even know? <laughs> and then I want to um, debunk some pro-life issues, um, um, some pro-life arguments, because I think it's important um, for me to say what those arguments are and to say why I politely disagree with a lot of them. Um, especially coming from, you know, me, a person who was never really necessarily pro-choice before this, but is even more pro-choice now after doing research and also coming from the fact that before I found a lot of controversy with abortion when I think it was in around high school, like early freshman year, because 
you know, when I talked with other people who were more pro-life, their arguments seemed valid to me at the time because I was like, oh my God, no, we're killing, we're murdering, or that sounds bad. Like, the truth is I did not know much, <laughs> um, to be completely honest and clear and transparent with that. But I want to talk about it now because now I know more things and I'm not here to convince anyone, obviously, to be whatever. I'm literally just saying, you know, everything from what I've researched, from public health research, things that I believe in um, and why I form those opinions and what we can do now. Um, I want to end the podcast with a little bit more hope <laughs> than what I'm starting off with because I don't want to be... A downer and I think there's more than just banning abortions there's more to um, lowering that maternal mortality rate um, besides getting abortions back so I think there's a lot of hope there and I think that is something that is being talked about which I'm glad to see we talked about and passed on over social media it's a really powerful place I highly recommend <laughs> um yeah and you can definitely find a lot more, I think, resources just by doing your own research. Um, I definitely encourage people to do their own research. And I think a lot of people have even more, way more than me. I still have a lot of areas to grow in. So, you know, take everything I say with the fact that I've really only researched this for a few days. But, um, you know, at a certain point, I just need to talk about this. Because if I don't talk about it, then I'm just really feeding into the stigma that it should not be talked about. But it really needs to be. And I really cannot go on until I share some of this information. Okay, so take everything I say with, I guess, a grain of salt. I don't know. I just want to talk about it. It's important. Okay, so let's start off with the history of the abortion in the U.S., um, and I say in the U.S. for a reason, because it, obviously, this is, it's it's about the U.S., but also the fact is, is that I believe the statistic is that 5%, yeah, I think it's 5% of women in the world um, live in areas where their country or whatever, the ruling has deemed abortion as illegal. Only 5%. And the fact that the U.S. has banned abortion really just goes to show that this is a big problem mainly for the U.S. It's not just like an overall universal thing. Oh, everyone's starting to talk about abortion controversy. No, this is really just a, a big U.S. problem. And I think it's interesting to see the history of abortion, which I did not know much about, and the fact that it really was not an issue until like the past two centuries. Okay. Um, also, when I say that it is illegal and only 5%, it, you know, that doesn't mean, that does not speak to accessibility. Also, that does not speak to the fact that 45% uh, of abortions are still unsafe around the world. There's a lot of other issues um, besides, you know, legalizing abortion, um, but that's a whole, that's a whole other can of worms. Let's just get started with the history. I don't want this podcast to be terribly frightening. Um or too long, because I don't want to discourage people from not hearing this information. Okay, anyways, um, history of abortion. Colonial America. Ooh, okay. <laughs> Colonial America. What time period was that in? 1607 to 1776, apparently. I'm really bad at history. Um, I had a lot, I had to do a lot of research for this. Okay. Colonial America, there were really no abortion laws. Um, 
Abortion was deemed as maybe not so great and was looked down upon, but that's because it was evidence of premarital sex rather than murder. So abortion was very common for um, people to get, um, especially in the first trimester. And that's because there were really no reliable pregnancy tests um, at the time. So I think there were no abortion laws because of that. And there was this whole idea of quickening. Like that's one of the only definitions they had in terms of abortion health care. The point of quickening, which you might have heard, is just the point at which pregnant women can feel the fetus's first movements, like their kicks, which happens pretty late as late as 20 weeks, so the second trimester. Um, and how ab abortion worked is, I think, herbs and everything like that were pretty common in kitchen gardens, and it was more of a private matter, you know, whether or not you want to um, provoke uterine bleeding. There were books on how to do that. There was over-the-counter patent medicine, all of this stuff, and um, it was pretty accessible in terms of that. But then when it came to the 1800s, it's a little bit different. So 1835, the statistic is that average, on average, women would uh, give birth more than six times during her lifetime, which meant abortions, you know, the reasoning for abortions were more so like, oh, the fact that women are giving birth six times in their lifetime, some women don't want to give birth that, that many times, or there was a lot of, especially, I guess, back then, <laughs> There was a lack of reliable contraception. Um, there was disgrace surrounding having, you know, childbirth outside marriage. There was dangers of childbirth before all the modern medical procedures. So up to 35% of uh, 19th century pregnancies ended in abortion, which is a pretty large percentage. And then, of course, you have the difference between, um, you already have these disparities when it comes to abortion health care where enslaved women were a lot more restricted because slaveholders were worried that women would self-induce a miscarriage. Um, and, you know, they they did with their own herbs. Um, but when you compare that with the middle and upper class women who were really like the kind of like, I guess, <laughs> grandmothers of abortion health care who were passing down this knowledge because issues of reproductive health then were seen as more of the woman's realm. And middle and upper class women had more of an advantage and more control over that. So that's kind of the 1800s. But that's when criminalizing abortion became a thing. So also if you hear pages turning, um, that's because I want to make sure I'm saying all these dates as correctly as I can. Um, so 18th century abortion, mainly via herbs, medications, is common practice. Okay. Now we see more laws that are starting off focusing on unregulated patent medicines and abortions after the point of quickening. So they're saying, um, like, for example, I think 1821, Connecticut passed the first law that criminalized abortion after quickening. So that's around four months of pregnancy. So they said it's illegal. You can't get an abortion after you feel the fetus kick. Okay. So that happened. And then you see there's these there's this movement of physicians being professionalized, physician becoming a profession, and it's taking dominance over the female midwives. So you see licensed male doctors um, saying that they they should have more jurisdic jurisdiction over women's health care over the female midwives that were used earlier. And when we see that happening, um, there was this one gynecologist named Horatio Storer, whatever, I don't know, 
The name doesn't matter, but there was this one gynecologist who said and argued that abortion was a crime, not a medical service. And because of his argument, a lot of other physicians developed a similar argument and abortion became more of a social issue rather than even a moral issue because physicians like this gynecologist argue that white women should have more babies for the future destiny of the nation. So we see abortion also being used as not only a moral issue, but a social weapon. And that's what's all happening in the um, 1800s. And then by 1880, there's, you know, all states have laws restricting abortion. And then by 1910, abortion at any point in pregnancy is illegal in every state. So basically within 10 years, abortion became illegal in every state, pretty much. So it happened all very quickly. We went from there being no abortion laws to all of a sudden abortion laws in every state banning it. So now we're, <laughs> now we're in a rut. Um, by 1910, every state had anti-abortion laws um, and they did have exceptions for, you know, whether or not the mother's life was endangered, but that's, and I'll talk about this more later, kind of just not a really valid statement. Anyways, once common information was gone, so in the 1900s, abortion and birth control were tied together, so you had less access to safe forms of abortion and medicine, and a lot of under-the-table surgery was happening in the 20th century, all of that, right? So we're having under-the-table surgery, which means higher risk, um, higher maternal mortality rates when it should not be that high because... Abortion is a pretty safe procedure. Um, 1973, we have Roe versus Wade, so that's pretty famous. Mm, essentially, Roe versus Wade stated that fetus is potential life, but it has no constitutional rights on its own. And they gave a framework for a woman's pregnancy, stating that the first trimester, woman's privacy is the strongest because Roe versus Wade was all about protecting that 14th Amendment of its implied right to personal privacy. So first first trimester, um, the state may not regulate abortion for any reason. Second trimester, the state may regulate um, abortion to only protect the maternal health. And then third is when the state can start to regulate or even prohibit abortion to promote interests in the fetus's um, um, interests. Okay, so there's this whole framework for each trimester. And then there's also this other case that happened, I believe, the same day, um, Doe versus Bolton, which essentially expanded upon Roe versus Wade and stated that abortion cannot be limited by the state if abortion was sought for reasons of maternal health. And then I think another case that's pretty important to talk about is 1992 Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which um, overturned that whole trimester framework that Roe v. Wade set up in favor of a fetal viability analysis. So it prevented states from banning abortion before fetal viability, which basically meant 24 weeks into the pregnancy, um, which is when fetuses, I guess, can usually survive outside the uterus. All right, so that is the quick rundown history. So we saw how abortion really just escalated in terms of being banned and um, being considered illegal. And the reasoning behind it, 
uh, a little questionable. All right, but recent events, you know, what's going on now? Um, essentially, December 2021, we have the whole Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. So the Supreme Court hears arguments um, in that case. In that case was challenging a Mississippi state law that banned abortion after 15 weeks. Um, and when the Supreme Court heard that, I think the general consensus was that um, abortion wasn't banned, but it wasn't considered a constitutional right. So Mississippi could keep its law. And then there were other laws, too, um, within the past few years, like the Texas Heartbeat Act, which banned abortions after cardiac activity in the fetus, which is six weeks. And then there was another act, I think, in April of this year, I think April of this year, where Oklahoma passed a law making performing an abortion a felony. So we're also threatening healthcare providers. Cool. Okay, so that's what's been going on. Um... And mainly the overturning of Roe versus Wade this past week has really brought up a lot of issues because one of the justices um, stated that the overturning of Roe versus Wade really meant the court should also reconsider some other rulings on past cases. And those past cases um, include the protection of rights to obtain contraception and also gay rights. So there were just a lot. There was just a quadruple whammy on a lot of the progress made over the past few uh, years that just happened over the past week. So I think it's safe to say that this is definitely affecting a lot of people's well-being. Um, and now I want to talk about the public health research side of it all, because that's an area I'm interested in. And I think it says a lot about why this is a healthcare issue, why this is also a human rights violation, and what research has gone to show. Okay, so public health research has consistently shown for a long time that because of, you know, banning abortions, having less access to things like this, there is going to be a higher um, unsafe, there's going to be higher number of unsafe attempts to end or terminate pregnancies. There are going to be more high-risk pregnancies that are carried to term, which means more babies being born also in states that don't have many prenatal care rulings in place. They don't have a lot of measurement measures to support parents or child care or parental leave or health care or any of that, but they're still creating these laws um, banning abortions. So we're going to see that. There's also... Uh, maternal health complications, um, those will be increasing. And then, of course, um, severe mental and economic stress, emotional stress for families. And also another thing that I think really social media has been really good at, you know, talking about is the fact that it's going to affect populations disproportionately um, because now in order to get abortions, some people will have to travel across multiple states. And that means two things. One, traveling to a different state is going to be really hard for someone who's low income because of all those travel expenses, lodging expenses, maybe even childcare expenses, all those expenses. And on top of that, two, 
abortion clinics, you know, are going to be in high demand. And that means longer wait times, um, which means pregnancies that originally were terminated around like in the middle of the first trimester are now going to probably be terminated around in the end of the first trimester or even the beginning of the second trimester. So all these things that could endanger and increase maternal, maternal, oh my gosh, maternal mortality rate. Not such a great theme. Yep. I, yep. Okay. And then of course there's actual medication for abortions at home, which is another great thing and something that a lot of nonprofits like Plan C are trying to bolster and support. Um, but the problem with this is that some states have literally tried to prevent people from getting these medications from via mail, or there's just not really high accessibility of these medications and not many people, it's not as well known um, as abortions. Um, even though these abortion medications can be used up to, I believe, the 11th week safely, um, it's just not as accessible. And this is really just going to exacerbate existing health inequities. So you can imagine the amount of health inequities, despite the U.S. having one of the most funded healthcare systems in the world. There's just so many health inequities already. It's really just going to exacerbate these existing health inequities. And, of course, um, there was a study. There's always studies done. Um, I believe this one followed a thousand people. Let me make sure I'm saying this correctly. Yeah, so there was this study done by researchers at UCSF, so University of California, San Francisco, where they followed a thousand people, divided into two cohorts. One, the first cohort, had successfully terminated a pregnancy, and another one uh, were unable to obtain an abortion. So they found that track like following these people for the next 10 years um those who carried unwanted pregnancies uh to term were more likely to experience household poverty evictions intimate partner violence and health issues versus the other other cohort who had lower risks of complications um and um less serious health problems and of course this disproportionately affected um uh, um, black and Latina mothers and a lot of the things um, that's really kind of scary is that the fact that the risk of medical complications of birth are far higher than the complications from having an abortion so if they had gotten an abortion a lot of these health issues would not be such of a serious problem for um, for them Um and they really just saw that just by tracking people over the next decade. So research really does go a long way and has shown and supported this for a long time. Um, but even with all this research, it still seems that abortions are not a constitutional right. And anti-abortionists and all those um, pro-life arguments have really just not made abortion easy for the past 50 years, even since the passing of Roe uh, versus Wade. It's, I think there's a lot of just stigma around getting an abortion, also talking about it. It's this whole thing, right? 
Um, but now even more so, we're exacerbating these existing health inequities by literally banning abortions. Okay, so that's the public health side of it all. Pretty cool, huh? <laughs> um, now I want to talk about debunking some of those pro-life arguments. Um, this is just my opinion and where I currently stand right now. Who knows what, you know, the future holds, but um, I don't know. I feel pretty solid in a lot of my arguments against these arguments. Ooh, arguments against arguments. Ooh, okay. So I was reading when I was doing my research for some pro-life arguments, and I found this whole constitution. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how many people who are pro-life agree with this whole thing, but it's like 32 pages long. So I, I try to read it. Um, and I noticed throughout a lot of these different kinds of best pro-life arguments, um, you know, that want to go outside of religion, they usually try to focus on, I think, three main things. The number one being science, which makes me, it makes me laugh and die inside at the same time, because I think this is one of the reasons that I struggled with the idea of abortion when I was like a freshman in high school because I didn't know much. <laughs> I didn't know anything. Um, but I also have always been a huge advocate of STEM. And I think when I was a freshman in high school, high school, middle school, I believe that STEM was this subject area that is always about seeking the truth. And in some ways it, it is. Um, but of course, as I've grown more and understood you know, professions more, I realized science, of course it's not the truth. <laughs> like, what does that even mean? Science is a human-made subject. And of course, the people who are doing research, the people who are programming or AI have biases. Um, you know, how we report things and research, it's in a biased format, really. So when we talk about science, and trying to use science as an argument, you know, science is very valid, but when it comes to this and all these other research studies, public health research studies showing, you know, how marginalized groups are going to be disproportionately affected by this ban and also the higher maternal mortality rates, it really just, it needs to be used in conjunction with science. So um, I think one of the, how the pro-life arguments are using science um, is they're saying, you know, this is the definition of an organism. This is what science says. Um, a zygote, you know, is going to grow, develop. A human embryo is life because it has four of whatever qualities. It has metabolism. It can reproduce, like whatever. It has all these qualities that science deemed as, you know, what is life? Um, okay, but that's science's definition, and science is a human-made thing. And what we're literally seeing is public health research showing that because of this ban, we're getting a lot more high risk um, when it doesn't need to be this high risk in healthcare. And I think one thing that I've learned over the past year, um, and one thing I read, I believe, from a public health journal is public health, the foundation of it is really social justice. You can't 
you can't, you know, study a disease without talking about the politics and the pathogen pathogenicity. Oh my god, I cannot pronounce words. Basically, you know, I think I struggle with this obviously too. Um we see science and STEM as these subjects of like truth. Like you can't say math is wrong. Like what does that mean? Um but you also science is nothing without public health. It can't be separated from public health. Science I mean I should probably search up the definition, but the fact is, is that science should be used to help. It's not a neutral subject. It will never be a neutral subject. And people who believe that it is a neutral subject, you know, it's, I think it comes from this whole like conception of, you know, we want to find the truth and we want to stay, like, stay away from controversy as scientists or researchers. But it's really impossible to actually do that. So the whole argument of, oh, the embryo is life, we cannot kill life, um, really goes down the drain because of public health research, which is science. <laughs> I don't know why I got that close to the mic like that. It is science. And in that case, science would be disproving science, if that makes any sense. Basically, what I'm trying to say is that when we see all these um, studies that go to show how detrimental um, banning abortions is for people who are already, you know, living, for people who, you know, are just trying to live their life <laughs> um, without having a higher mortality rate, which is very valid, very, very valid. Um, when we see the detrimental impact on that, it really just goes to show, you know, life of a fetus it's just science you know science is not it science cannot just be it when it comes to things like this and we're literally seeing how research is proving this argument i don't know that was a really terrible explanation of what i was trying to say but the point is is that science is still biased and the argument is pretty invalid when it comes to looking at the actual impact of, you know, when it comes to healthcare. If we're really that focused on healthcare and prioritizing um, human health when we're talking about science and these pro-life arguments, then we would obviously want to look more at um, what's going on right now by banning abortion. And then there's two other arguments I think that a lot of pro-life, at least from this document, I think used and touched on which was something about like the right to abortion. So fewer abortions is for the good of women, children, families, and society. And they talk a lot about um, elective abortions. So basically any abortions outside of um, rape, incest, or um, like health related maternal, anything that uh, I guess is like a threat to maternal health. Um, but I think one thing that a lot of people have pointed out is that by banning abortion in general, I think we're creating an even riskier environment for those who, you know, have those reasons that are not elective or whatever their term is. Um, because now doctors can't actually do their job and provide health care, which is a little bit embarrassing to think about. Um, the fact that doctors now have to get legal advice on whether or not, you know, they can perform this without going to 
prison or, you know, it's just making the risk higher because we're waiting longer times for women to get the treatment that they need for anyone to get the treatment that they need um, that involves abortion. And it's abortion is a medical procedure. So it it's just really hard to say that, you know, elective abortions are bad. So that's why we need to ban abortions in general, because no, this is going to have a long-term domino chain effect. All right. And then there was a third argument that's like abortions are dangerous, but it's actually been shown that if, you know, you have a trained health professional, which you would if they weren't banned, um, there's less risk or less complications for an abortion comp- compared to something like your wisdom teeth being removed. So it really just goes to show, like, um, you know, abortions and their health risks are definitely not as high, especially compared to actual birth and forcing someone to carry a child to term when that child and um, person are even at higher risk for doing that. So all these arguments are really just, I think, exacerbating all these health inequities. I'm sorry, I keep saying those three words, exacerbating health inequities, but it's true. Okay, but now I want to leave off with some hope, because <laughs> this podcast has been really long, but it is it is an important issue. Um, so I want to leave off with um, three things that are outside of abortion bans, and I think really good points for, you know, people to know. So when it comes to, you know, the fact that we want to improve um, healthcare by lowering maternal mortality and morbidity rates and lowering um, infant death rates and building a stronger economy or improving even the environment, the health of the environment, um, you know, abortions are not the only way. So one way is family planning. And that's, you know, I guess like a large argument of pro-choice, right? Where now, especially for women who are in low and middle income countries, um, they want to avoid pregnancy or delay pregnancy. But a lot of um, people don't use modern contraception for reasons. And if we could meet those, you know, needs, contraceptive um, needs around the world, there would be a lot, I guess, economically, a lot more money um, saved. Um, and then, of course, we're benefiting, you know, people everywhere who really just need, you know, the opportunity to reach their full potential and now can because of things like um, increasing knowledge about contraception and um, increasing, um, I guess, things like medication abortion. So that's like the second reason by... You know, science has evolved so much <laughs> um, in the health landscape as well. Um, now there are pills and medications that make it possible for a lot of um, uh, people to self-manage the process of abortion and telemedicine, especially. Um, especially with the pandemic, we now know that telemedicine is definitely effective and now it can be done more in the privacy of your own home. And then... Third, post-abortion care. So, um, 
women can quickly become fertile again after an abortion. So now that we have family planning and contraception as, you know, um, we've seen, we've seen that these two things have helped lower maternal mortality rate. Those can also be implemented in post-abortion care. And, um, I think it's been found that it really just is a crucial step, um, towards preventing even more unintended pregnancies, uh, after abortions. And that when patients do receive that, um, most will now have an effective family planning method, um, helping lower, uh, you know, infant and child death rates and all that good, good. <laughs> I don't know why I just said that. Um, so really there's a lot more, obviously, outside of abortions that will promote healthcare, uh, around the world, um. And I just think it's really important now to realize, you know, even though there's now legal barriers to abortions, there are other barriers to abortion that we should be focused on, such as, you know, this whole family planning thing. Um, and really, by focusing on other things as well, you know, and besides voting, you know, your upcoming elections, um, it is really important to realize that there are other ways that we can promote and better healthcare around the world besides, you know, um, these legal barriers. And even though I think right now it's a little tough to talk about topics like this because um, if you are surrounded by a lot of people who are like pro-life and arguments, it's hard to, at least it's hard for me, I think, um, coming from a personal like opinion it's hard to always respect um other people's opinions because respect i search up the definition of respect and it means to admire someone and i don't admire a lot of those arguments um at least right now in this time and probably for for forever but um i think it's just important now that we do talk about issues like this and i know this podcast has gone on for a really long time, but I think it's really important that I do talk about this. And, you know, I'm definitely not the most knowledgeable on this topic. And even right now, I want to do more research. This is what I know now, but imagine how much more I can know later. Imagine how much more of an impact it will be for me and you to research more and learn more about the healthcare system especially if you want to go into healthcare, but I think it's, it's really just important also to know for your, for your own sake. Um, but then again, you know, I have a lot of areas to grow in. This is just something I think is really important to talk about for our own well-being. And, um, even though it's kind of stressful thinking about all of this right now, um, and where the future could go and what it means for a lot of people, because the impact is quite profound. Um, I do want to just say like, there is hope. There is light at the end of the tunnel. <laughs> As I talked about with all these other resources and of course, I'm also going to do this, but I encourage everyone listening to also do their own research and learn more about what they can do. Um, especially at the community level, I feel like looking up and searching up funds to donate to, um, knowing your own resources, um, you know, 
for your own sake and for your own health is super important and something I definitely want to focus on more now. And in that way, in a kind of messed up way, (laughs) in a really messed up way, I'm glad now that this issue has come to the limelight more, at least for me now, and I can actually prioritize this more and learn more later on. So, um, yeah, that's kind of it for this podcast. Um, you know, correct me if I'm wrong on anything I say. I'm sure I'm wrong somewhere. Um, it's a learning process and, um, I want to hear other people's opinions, of course, even pro-life. And I think it's important that we just keep these conversations going, um, and do our own research to try to figure out what we can do, um, to really, I think in the end, we all just want, you know, to see our healthcare system improve and see people's well-being improve. Um, and whatever ways we can do that, researching ways we can do that, I think is the best next step. All right. <laughs> so thank you for sticking this out and I will see you next time. Goodbye.